Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Hello and welcome. It's February 28, 2023, and in the Hebrew calendar, the 7th of Adar, 5783. I am Walter Bingham with a very special program today. Last week I talked about the work and successes of the Sovereignty Movement. As part of their activities, they organized from time to time educational trips to areas in Judea and Samaria showing the expansion of the establishment of illegal Arab settlements in Area C, which, according to the Oslo Accord of 1995, is under full Israeli control. Until now, all the trips were conducted in Hebrew. Well, last week, however, was their very first lecture tour in English, which was a great success. Today, I tell you all about it, and shall explain in a moment why this will educate you. It was led by the extremely knowledgeable Naomi Linda Khan, the director of the International Division of Regabim. They are an Israeli NGO that monitors and pursues legal action in the Israeli court system against any construction lacking Israeli permits undertaken by Palestinians or Bedouins anywhere in Israel and the disputed part of Judea and Samaria, known as West Bank. One is never too old to learn, and so my knowledge of that subject was considerably enhanced by the wealth and detailed information imparted by Naomi Linda Khan. I learned, for instance, why the many unfinished multi-story Arab buildings that are dotted all over Area C are not occupied by the Bedouins who live primitively in settlements in their immediate vicinity. The Palestinian Authority, responsible for that population, is deliberately placing them as markers for future expansion. They also consider Bedouins as unworthy and way beneath the standard of the Palestinian class, a blatant example of discrimination that the so-called Palestinians complain of as being practiced by Israel against them. While on the subject, we travelled on some roads that were subdivided into parts not permitted by Jews, just as the prominent red signs prohibited Jews from entering areas A and B, part of our biblical homeland. From time to time, I stress in my program that I aim to inform and entertain, but never educate. Well, today is an exception and the first time on this program. I stick my neck out to say that I am almost certain that you do not know the many details of the illegal Arab expansion in our heartland. You heard from my program here on Israel News Talk Radio that I am reasonably well informed and up to date about the conflict with our Arab cousins but I must tell you that I did not know the host of information that I learned from our guide Naomi. So, if it is important for you to augment your knowledge, then listen and get educated.
We began the tour at the lookout point on Mount Scopus in Jerusalem. After an introductory explanation showing parts of what we were going to see, we went deep into the country, taking care not to touch the electric fence and listening to our first surprises. We learned about the very complicated legal aspects of land ownership in our own sovereign country. In fact, that was the theme of the trip. Throughout the program, I bring you edited versions of what we heard from our guide. In the 1980s, the government of Israel surveyed the territory of Judea and Samaria partially, and that's an issue about how much has actually been surveyed and registered and declared. It's a huge problem. Israel has refrained from doing this officially so that it would not be construed as acts of sovereignty. So even though the British conducted a survey and registration and the Jordanians and the Ottomans conduct survey and registration, none of them completed the jobs in Judea and Samaria. The only places in Israel that aren't surveyed and registered are Judea and Samaria and the Negev. And that's where we have all of our problems with land ownership claims that have not been resolved. The state of Israel has failed to take control of its assets. In the meantime, in the 1980s, the state of Israel looked at some of these uninhabitable areas, made sure there was no one living here and no ownership of any kind, and declared them training grounds. And this is one of them. Particularly in the news these days is firing zones 917 and 918 in the South Hebron area. After almost 20 years in court, the Supreme Court of Israel Finally, last May, came out with a decision that the squatter in Masafar Yata, 917-918, are there illegally, have no claims to the land, should never have been there, violated all of the temporary injunctions that should have kept them from building any further. But instead of the original few shacks and tents that were allowed to stay in the territory, there are now thousands of structures, and it's turned a small problem into a huge one. It is a massive international issue, as it always is, because the Europeans put them there and sustain them there. But what we do is we take aerial photographs of all the places where they claim that they've always lived, or there's always been a village, or that Israel has chased them out after 1967, or has taken their land, we purchased aerial photos going back all the way to after World War I. There were photos taken of all of these places from light planes. We move forward in time and we track the development of all of this. And we have seen, without a doubt, that from the time the Fayad plan was declared, the jump in illegal construction is undeniable and it is strategically placed. So when Fayad launched the plan, he announced... The Bedouin are the foot soldiers of Palestinian independence. It means, first of all, that they are extremely vulnerable, they are extremely movable, they have no voice, they are not constituents of anyone, they're more or less off the grid, and therefore easily manipulated. Since then, the Palestinian Authority has been using the Bedouin as place markers to take over territory. There have always been Bedouin who travel through the Judean desert seasonally. The only thing a Bedouin needs grazing, and the water source. So what did the Palestinian Authority do? They placed water tankers in strategic areas, knowing full well that the Bedouin would collect around a free water source. Every couple of weeks, they switched for a full tanker, and the Bedouin stayed there. And then the very first illegal permanent structure that goes up on the ground in all of these places is a school. 
We have now tracked 100 illegal Palestinian Authority European-sponsored schools in Area C. So the school is there for two reasons. Number one, to draw more population. And number two, because if Israel actually does knock it down, it's a huge international incident because Israel is accused of denying the most vulnerable children an education. The fact that these schools are built where there are no children and kids are bused from all over the Palestinian Authority to sit and populate these illegal structures is quite beside the point. The Europeans are either duped into believing that there are children there that need a school or they are willing participants. Mm -hmm. You can choose. So I'll show you how we track these things. We are again being shown aerial photographs. This, for example, is training zone 917 and 918. Here's what it looked like in 1945. Not a thriving metropolis. This is what it looked like in 1967. Not something that Israel depopulated. We did this for each of the 15 quote-unquote villages in the firing zone, 9-1. This is what it looked like in 1981. Still empty. Not ancient history. The reason the IDF declared this a firing zone was because there was no one here. There was nothing here. There never had been. Going back to the Ottoman Empire, the land was classified as mawat. It comes from the same word as mavet, which means dead, empty barren, not used, not habitated, not cultivated. This is what it looked like in 2008, before the Fayyad plan. This is what it looks like today. Very heavily populated, besides shacks with permanent structures supplied by the European Union. And Israel is being accused of war crimes because it has deemed these places illegal and the people living in them Although they are all registered residents, homeowners, where they own homes inside Palestinian Authority-controlled areas, the international community says it's a war crime to make these people homeless and to banish them from their ancestral village, which didn't exist in 2008. The next segment deals with the extremely important and very complicated legal system of land laws. The state of Israel refrained from extending Israeli law to the territories liberated in 1967. It is an area that has to be administered under the rule of law. In general, when you have a territory that is occupied by an aggressor in a war, if the territory is not annexed, then the Geneva Conventions apply to that territory and to the people who are living in it. Although Israel is not an aggressor, and although the territory in question had always been part of the state of Israel's originally recognized boundaries, going back all the way to the 1920s, the state of Israel voluntarily applied the Geneva Conventions to this territory in order to administer the territory under law. The Geneva Convention states that when a territory is occupied, the legal regime has to maintain the legal system of the previously recognized sovereign of the territory. Now, here we have a problem, because the previously recognized sovereign of Judea and Samaria was not the Jordanians that had illegally occupied this territory for 19 years, and not the British mandate before them, because they were never a sovereign, they were a caretaker, they were a mandatory, but the Ottoman Empire. Now, the Ottoman Empire had ceased to exist after World War I. So Israel is maintaining a system of law from a defunct regime, 
And not only that absurdity, but the Ottoman Empire itself tried to revamp its own system of law pertaining to property rights because it was so outdated and so counterproductive by the beginning of the 20th century. But they didn't have time to go over to a system of land registration according to a grid. So the attempt to abandon that system of Ottoman land law actually were abandoned at the outbreak of World War I and never completed. So we are stuck with a system of law we have imposed on ourselves that is hundreds of years outdated and counterproductive. Ottoman land law, for example, tried to encourage people in this part of the world to take possession of land and use it for, a, for any productive enterprise because this was all a wasteland and there was nothing here. So Ottoman land law essentially said, take a piece of land, plant something on it, and then it will no longer be considered state land. And, of course, collect taxes. That whole system, you can imagine, becomes extremely counterproductive when the land becomes valuable, when there's an economy developing here, and when there's a conflict over ownership. But Israel continues to uphold that law. It gets even worse because the Supreme Court of the State of Israel, and let's talk about anti-Jewish apartheid, determined in a very famous case, it's known as the Lessons case, that the articles of Ottoman land law that enable you to take and gain rights over land simply by using it for agriculture are only applied to Arabs, not to Jews. So if we go out and plant trees, we get no rights to the land. It's illegal. The government of Israel can either uproot those trees without any process or decide to leave those trees, but you st still don't accrue any rights to the land. Whereas if an Arab or a Bedouin does the exact same thing, they gain rights and the state can no longer claim that land as state land because they consider the Arabs the indigenous population and we are here as caretakers until such time as a political resolution is achieved and being that they are a minority in this territory, we have to respect and protect proprietary rights above our own. There's one thing you have to remember. All of these things were our decision we created this situation, we uphold this situation, and we can reverse this situation. Not only do we have the ability, we have the right. Under international law, there is nothing that prohibits creating Jewish settlement on the land. There is nothing that prevents the state of Israel from using state land any way it chooses. We have to have a government that is willing to stand up to the international pressure and say, we have tried the path of negotiated resolution. We have tried the path of political compromise. It has not brought us anything but disaster. We are now going to simply extend our law to the territories under our present jurisdiction, the areas C. Areas A and B are for a different day. We can do this. We have every tool that we need to correct all this without violating the rights of anyone else in this territory. But then there was also the illegal distribution of land rights by the Jordanians during their illegal occupation of what they called the West Bank. The Jordanians, in order to win over the locals and to establish a stronger foothold in the territory, summarily transferred title to both privately owned and state-owned land throughout the area, and particularly in Jerusalem, 
simply handed over Jewish land to others. For example, all these refugee camps that surround Jerusalem, all of them are on privately owned Jewish land. The Jordanians created these refugee camps to make it impossible for Jews to reclaim them. And that's exactly what happened. All of that land was forfeited. There is also privately owned Jewish land in areas A and B, which is forfeit as well. Jewish proprietary rights have taken a secondary position to other rights, either real or imagined, such as national rights. There is no such concept in the world. In 1967, the state of Israel's decision was to honor all of those transfers of title carried out by the Jordanians, even though the Jordanian regime here was illegal, was internationally condemned. We have, in many cases, upheld those decisions simply because we are a people of law and order. So that is the situation. And now we hear something about the flagship of the Palestinian Authority's strategically placed outposts, Khan El Amal. If you follow the news, you cannot have missed the details of the government's repeat requests to the Supreme Court to extend the time limit of their order to demolish or relocate that dangerously positioned Arab outpost. This is Khan al-Akhmar. What you see below us here is actually double the size that it was when the Supreme Court determined that it is illegal, should be removed, evacuated, and the people relocated. So it keeps growing, and we have to ask ourselves why that is. But first, I want you to try to understand the strategic importance, because this spot is dead center between Ramallah, Bethlehem and Jericho. And the black line that you see there is Route 1. We are looking at one of Regabim's wonderfully constructed maps. It's important. All those little dots that you see are illegal construction. The red ones are older. The green ones are from the last year and a half. The red ones are cumulative until 2019. Uh, and then till the end of two, the green ones were added in. As you can see, it's very, very significant. Throughout Judea and Samaria, there are currently 81,317 illegal Palestinian structures on the ground. In the year and a half of Benny Gantz's tenure as Minister of Defense, 5,531 of them were built. Added. So that is an 80% increase in the rate from the year before his tenure, when there was the Lapid Bennett government. We carry out this survey of the territory and compare aerial photos every 16 to 18 months. In about a year, we will compare how this government is treating the territory as opposed to the Lapid Bennett government to see if there's any significant difference. In the meantime, this is Khan al-Akhmar. In 2009, the people of Kfar Dumim understood that they had a problem because the Bedouin who had always gone through this area, uh, seasonally grazing from here all the way down to the Dead Sea, suddenly stayed put and the first illegal structure appeared on the territory. A school. The school here is famous because it's made out of recycled tires and falafel oil. So it stinks. It's hazardous, it's toxic. We're in the desert. In the summer, it's blazing hot here. There's no electricity. There's no running water. There's no sewage. In 2009, 
an Italian NGO, theoretically a church group, which is fully funded by the government, called Vento de Terra, built the school or funded the construction of the school. And they now they started calling it an ecological school. There have been incidents of rock throwing from the school down onto Route 1. They stopped doing that when they realized it was very, very bad PR. But Khan al-Akhmar is now, I would say, 70% bigger than five and a half years ago. And that makes no sense because six times the Supreme Court of the State of Israel, which cannot be accused of being right-wing in any way, has found that these people should not be here. They have no claim. They have never made a claim of ownership to the land. They have no connection to this land. They have no right to be here. And they are not being served by being here. The municipality. They are living in subhuman conditions, and they are being used as pawns. The Supreme Court required the state of Israel to provide an alternative location to remove them, to relocate them. This was not something that should be taken for granted since they are not Israeli citizens and Israel has no responsibility for them. They are subjects of the Palestinian Authority, which can and should provide for all of their needs in areas A or B, but chooses not to. So the state of Israel invested 80 million shekel just outside Abu Dhabi. Developed plot, sewage, running water, electricity, paved roads, provided mobile units for schools with air conditioning and health clinic, access to Abu Dis, it's right outside Abu Dis, and to all the places in which these people are employed within Israel's jurisdiction. Part of the clan that lived here agreed and relocated. 20% of them stayed put, and then the Palestinian Authority and Union got involved. First of all, there's an organization that no one will believe because it's bizarre, but it's actually true. Society of St. Eve's. It's a fully government-funded church entity founded here in Israel by a woman named Linda Breyer Bernstein, fascinating woman who came on Aliyah and immediately converted to Roman Catholicism and works against Israel within Palestinian lawfare against Israel, and then converted to Islam and dropped off the map, and nobody knows what her name is now or where she is. So Khan al-Akhmar, the state of Israel provided and created all of this. The 20% of the holdouts that did not relocate, the Palestinian Authority and the European Union represent them, quote-unquote, in court, in a series of appeals, saying that they don't understand enough to have actually signed a deal. They canceled the deal that was signed with them, and now force them not to come to any compromise with the state of Israel, but to stay put right here on the highway in these subhuman conditions, because they're being used as pawns. And the Bedouin who live here have said on camera, and anyone who wants to see it, I can send you the link, that they're between the rock and the hard place. We have nothing against these people. We really believe that the state of Israel should not allow people to live this way for many reasons. First and foremost, because it is inhumane. This is a human rights catastrophe that the Palestinian Authority not only is creating, but is not allowing anyone else to resolve because it's simply a great tool in their hands. But it's replicating this same pattern over and over and over again. So... The Supreme Court, in six separate petitions by the Rigavi movement, all of which, by the way, cost us tens of thousands to pursue. If anybody wants to help us do that, I'll tell you how. We try to force the state of Israel to actually uphold the law and to uphold the Supreme Court's decisions because it's in everyone's interest.
despite what the Palestinian Authority claims, that this is their historic village, and they've always been here, we did what we always do. At this point, Naomi showed a collection of aerial photographs that show that the area is far from being the ancestral home that they claim, but that even in 1967, the place was desolate. Nothing here. No one here. Empty state. That's the whole point. This is what it looked like in 1978. A few tents. 1999, before the Fayyad plan, before anybody got involved and made this an international event, a few seasonal tents. Depending on what season of the year you took the picture, there was either something here or nothing here. But the Bedouin border are part of a larger tribe. The rest of the tribe is down by Arad. As often happens with Bedouin, there was an internal conflict over grazing, land. The weaker families got pushed out. They migrated north, and they ended up here in the Judean desert area. I'll just point out that Ahmar means the soil and the mountain formations here are red. That's where Ma'alea Dumim, which is also a biblical name, got its name. And Khan al-Ahmar means the rest stop in the red area. That's where we are. So there was nothing here. There has never been anything here. And after all of this, the government of Israel was cowed into non-action by international actors. The Europeans who are helping to support all of this, and only recently the Americans as well, and not allowing them to relocate, even though it is in their best interest and everyone else's best interest. So you have essentially three sides where there should really only be one side. There's the law, and that's what we're interested in. But the other side is the Palestinian Authority, and the third side is international pressure. When Avigdor Lieberman was Minister of Defense and Netanyahu was Prime Minister, the court said it had to be removed, and Netanyahu said, okay, we're going to remove Khan al-Ahmar, and the Minister of Defense put together everything that needed to be done. The night before the relocation, it was called off. The Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel, was on her way to Israel, and she called Netanyahu from the plane and said, if you touch Khan al-Akhmar, I'll turn the plane around and I won't come back. However, and here's the however, and please keep this in mind. Two days after her trip, it was announced that a major deal for nuclear-powered submarines between Germany and Israel was concluded while she was here. So Netanyahu had to decide what's more important. Moving these shacks at the time, that's all there was here and forfeiting nuclear-powered submarines, or the other way around. We don't claim to know what the Prime Minister knows. We also visited a sheep and goat farm, courageously established deep in the Arab countryside, near the Jewish industrial area and town of Kedar. While there, we learned some more about the confusing laws of our land, about permits for grazing and the discrimination in favor of Arabs. The farm itself is on privately owned Jewish land, which is signed, sealed, and delivered. There's also state land for grazing purposes. There is such a thing in the state of Israel as grazing licenses, and that is a very, very important element. Both Jews and non-Jews are given grazing licenses in specified areas. It is an interest of the state to have those things regulated. Unfortunately, you have tremendous amount of discrimination against the Jewish sector of licenses for grazing. 
And the periods for which those licenses are given are different between seasonal and permanent grazing rights. And we at Rigavim are trying to bring to the fore a very, very serious problem that discriminates against the Jewish residents of the state of Israel, not only in Judea and Samaria, but also in little Israel. We've had to actually go to court and sue to get data. We want whether or not on areas that were given permits for grazing, there has been illegal construction or permanent residence of other kinds, which violates the terms of those licenses. The road that we came through to arrive at the farm and all of those Bedouin outposts that we saw along the way are all situated on registered state land. And therefore, the state of Israel has not only the authority, but the responsibility to protect these open areas and to maintain them so that if in future it chooses to build communities here or to cede that territory, God forbid, it has the ability to do so. As you know, Area C is not administered like the rest of Israel, but by Kogat, the coordinator of government activities in the territories, a unit in the Israeli Ministry of Defense that engages in coordinating civilian issues between the government of Israel, the Israeli Defense Forces, international organizations, diplomats, and the Palestinian Authority. In other words, it is the military that makes the rules. And as you will hear, their task is to keep the peace between the Arabs and us at any price, even to the disadvantage of the Jewish population. My reference to international organizations refers to the European Union, who conduct an outrageous campaign, particularly in Area C, to settle Arabs in strategic locations to lay the groundwork for a Palestinian state in Judea and Samaria. That creates legal complications, as Naomi, our guide, explains. Civil administration is an arm of the military, of the military job one, maintaining quiet, and sometimes they choose to enable Palestinian annexation of military territory to avoid confrontation. We, as the people of Israel, who have a national interest, cannot afford to choose the path of least resistance when it comes to sacrificing our national interest. I'm going to show you now a map of all the places where there is European Union activity. In these places, 80% or more of the structures on the ground bear European Union symbols. That means that these outposts would not exist if the Europeans didn't put them there. The map shows all the places that we have identified European Union involvement. The European Union does not build structures, legal or otherwise, anywhere in the world, except for here. The European Union has never undertaken this massive an intervention anywhere in the world. And that is why the State of Israel has been so hesitant to confront this illegal construction, because it has all of this European support. There are eight European countries, mostly members of the EU, repeatedly threatened to sue the State of Israel for compensation when an illegal structure that it paid for is torn down. What you have is foreign actors who are changing the map, taking one side in a conflict against the interests of an allied country, supporting an authoritarian, totalitarian, corrupt Islamist regime, 
uh, to the detriment of the only democracy in the Middle East, and then threatening the state of Israel with sanctions and uh, charges of war crimes when Israel actually dares on those rare occasions to enforce the law against this illegal annexation. So that is the maps, are the places where the European Union symbol is proudly displayed to give diplomatic protection to illegal structures. As we have learned today, the international community that was so enthusiastic to establish a Jewish homeland in 1948 on all of the territory vacated by the British Mandatory Administration is today adamant that the area is really Palestinian ancestral land and that Israel has to surrender the large area which contains most of our biblical heritage to an upstart artificial nation for the creation of a sovereign alien state. Both Regabim, the sovereign movement and this program are working hard to educate much of the international community of the folly of this policy that will never leads to peace in the area. The influential Gulf states and some Muslim countries in Africa have already realized that there are other more important threats in the world which necessitate an alliance with Israel. It brought about the Abraham Accord which is slowly expanding, bringing peace and stability to all our region and leaving the so-called Palestinians far behind to ponder their future. Thank you for listening, and until the next time, this is Walter Bingham wishing you a safe and tranquil week. You have, of course, the holy duty to drop in on your elderly neighbors to check if they have what they need, because in many parts of the world, it's very cold. Thank you. Goodbye. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Howdy, this is Rita from Leak City, Texas, now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Doris from Tennessee. Me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 
You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 